2 Timothy 1. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, notice this, before the ages began. Pray with me. Father, I would plead with you today to do a mighty work. Teach your people. Don't teach us that we might have puffed up heads full of knowledge, but teach us that we might rest in and love you more. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. I want you to imagine that you're looking at a painting. How many of you are art lovers? You've got to be louder than that. It ain't going to work. Yes? All right. Good. I want you to imagine you're looking at a work of fine art. Particularly, though, I want you to think about a large painting. How many of you are familiar with The Last Supper that Leonardo da Vinci painted? Okay, good. You guys are with me. Good. You guys know how big that thing is? The original mural painted is approximately 15 feet tall by 29 feet wide. Did you know? So if you wanted to examine that painting, if you want to get the most out of it, you've got to look at it in more than one way. You've got to get close to it so that you can examine each of the people depicted. You might even get really close up so that you can see how da Vinci made his brush strokes, how he layered the paint on that dry plaster. But if you want to take in the grandeur of the painting, you've got to step back. You've got to get back so you can see the whole thing at a glance. The Word of God is a masterpiece. And the Word of God is huge. It's a meta narrative, a, a true story that explains everything that is important for us to have explained. How do we study the Word of God? Well, one way to study the Word of God is to look up close. Maybe you look at a single paragraph. Maybe you walk through a single book, verse by verse. That, of course, is the most common way we handle the Word here at PRC, right? We, we take a book, we walk a book. Some folks look even more minutely. Some folks would spend weeks on one single verse, one single phrase. We might do that here, but I'm not that smart. 
But like looking at a massive painting, sometimes if you want the full picture of the Bible, you can't get it by looking up close only. Sometimes you've got to step back and try to take in the entire landscape. You need to see how the tale unfolds from its start all the way to its finish. You need to see the key milestones that are along the way. And seeing the larger picture, seeing the larger picture can then help you to appreciate the fine detail of every individual verse or doctrine. This morning, we're going to begin a look at the big picture of the Bible. Because we want to catch the highest of the high points of God's glorious story of redemption. And the best way that I can think of for you and me to do that over the next several weeks, from now through the end of the year, is for us to highlight the major covenants of redemptive history. Thus, we're starting a new series today, and I'm calling it Covenants to Christmas. Yes, we're starting the Christmas series now. Hey, if they can put Christmas trees in the stores now, we can do this, guys. We can do this together. We will make it. If you'll stick with me for about 10 messages, Lord willing, we're going to get a sweet picture of God's massive plan to save a people for himself and to bring glory to his holy name. You're going to see, and as we get closer to Christmas, you'll see more and more, the glorious hope in the coming of Jesus and the glorious hope that Jesus accomplished, and you're going to see how that hope is perfectly in keeping with everything God has been promising and promising before time began. You know, when I planned to preach this, I did not plan that we would sing every promise of your word, because I expected that for something else. God is sovereign. He's good. He makes his church worship just the right way. Hopefully, in all this, you'll end up with a better grasp of the important features of the scriptures so that you can better understand the Bible when we get back into looking at passages like our look at the gospel according to John that we will return to, Lord willing, in January. So, my goal today is very teachy. You'll forgive me for being extra teachy, won't you? My goal is twofold. First, I want us to briefly see what we're talking about when we use the word covenant. We'll point out a few of the major covenants in Scripture that we will soon study. Then, I want us to start taking a look at the very first covenant of all. We're going to call it the covenant of redemption. It's the covenant made among the persons of the Holy Trinity. So, Y'all ready to jump in? I, I don't have points per se, but you note takers can figure this out. I believe in you. First question we're going to address is this. What is a covenant? Tom Schreiner, he's an author, he's a professor at Southern Seminary. 
says that a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Michael Brown and Zach Keel say something very similar. Quote, a covenant is a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. Sam Renahan tells us a covenant, a covenant is a guaranteed commitment. Two parties make commitments to one another. Their commitments are often summed up in I will, you will statements. Different covenants have different kinds of commitments, and the varying kinds of commitments in these covenants result in different kinds of covenants. That's helpful from Sam Renahan. I will tell you that a covenant is a binding relationship-based agreement. I think that's the simplest definition I can give you. A covenant is a binding relationship-based agreement. Yes, there's more to it, but that'll get us started. A covenant is like a promise, but bigger. It's like a contract, but stronger, more focused on relationship. A covenant is an oath, often with sanctions and blessings attached to the oath. What can a covenant be? In the Bible, we see the word covenant used to describe a peace treaty between nations or even between individuals. The concept is used for marriage, sometimes for committed friendship and loyalty, Covenant can be the word for God's relationship-forming agreement to be his people's God. It can be God's unilateral promise to preserve the earth from another global flood. A covenant, it's both like and unlike a formal contract in our culture. Both covenant and contract point to a binding agreement. But the focus and the substance is different. A contract focuses on a, a thing, goods to be require, acquired, right? Duties to be performed. That's what a contract is about. A covenant, in contrast, is more focused on the relationship to be established or upheld. While covenants have st stipulations and expectations, they tend more toward declaring who I am to you and who you are to me. A contract is about the benefits that you'll receive by performing a task, whereas a covenant is about the relationship that is formed between the two parties. Think about it this way. Do you guys know that there's a difference between a lease and a marriage? Is that difficult or easy? That's pretty easy, right? But in a lease, I agree to pay a certain amount of money per month and to abide by rules so that I can be allowed to live in like a house that you own. Right? That's a lease. 
A marriage is also an agreement. A marriage results in new living arrangements. Marriage includes expectations of things that a person will do. And I think you guys would agree, marriage includes things that you expect a person will not do. Marriage assumes unique benefits of the relationship and particular consequences for breaking the covenant agreement. Yet, the marriage is not about those expectations. Instead, marriage is about the formation of a new family unit, a new relationship with all the benefits, commitments, and expectations that go along with it. Marriage is a covenant, not merely a contract. A lease is a contract, not a relationship building covenant. With me? So as we work through the study, we're going to center our attention on seven covenants throughout the unfolding story of Scripture. Again, I'm telling you what we're going to cover for now through December. Seven covenants. What are they? The first one is called the covenant of redemption. For you Latin folks, it's the pactum salutis. We'll also cover the Adamic covenant. You want to guess who that covenant was made with? Adam. Then we'll cover the Noahic covenant. That is the covenant with? Good. We're going to cover the Abrahamic covenant. That's the covenant with Abraham. The Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant made with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. We'll cover the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David. And we will then cover the new covenant. You know who that covenant's with? us. There are, of course, other covenants in the Bible that we will not take time to look at in our covenant series. As a few examples, Genesis 21, verse 27, Abraham and Abimelech enter into a covenant of non-aggression. Joshua chapter 9, the nation of Israel makes an unwise covenant with the Gibeonites. Jonathan made a covenant of friendship with David in 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. Malachi 2, 4 points to a covenant between God and the Levites, while Malachi 2, 14 points to the covenant between a husband and a wife. The reason we're going to look particularly at the seven covenants that I just mentioned to you, though, is that those promises from God unfold for us the entire story of Scripture. They walk us through God's glorious plan from its beginning to its end. Authors Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam explain to us the importance of understanding the key covenants to understand Scripture. They say, quote, one cannot fully understand Scripture and correctly draw theological conclusions from it without grasping how all of the biblical covenants unfold across time and find their telos, terminus, and fulfillment in Christ. We do not assert, they go on, we do not assert 
that the covenants are the central theme of Scripture. Instead, we assert that the covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta narrative, and thus it is essential to put them together correctly in order to discern accurately the whole counsel of God. So, friends, today we begin our walk through the Bible's covenants by looking at the great artistry of the Bible. And we're going to see the first covenant in the story. So now we're to the section you might label the covenant of redemption. We've thought of what a covenant is. Now we're going to talk about the covenant of redemption, the pactum. I want to know how well you guys know your theologians. I'm going to give you a quote, and I want you to tell me who is the theologian who said it. Because you all are smart, reformed folks, right? You ready? The quote is this. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Who said that? Yeah, there you go. That's right. That actually was Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. But hey, she knew what she was talking about, didn't she? In general, wouldn't you guys agree that starting at the beginning is a good place to start? Okay. Listen to some verses. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You guys know those verses pretty well, don't you? Ask yourself an important question. I want you to think with me here. If God created everything in the beginning, how then does God relate to the beginning? If God made everything in the beginning, then God exists before the beginning. Why? If God began with the beginning, then God could not have created all things in the beginning. There has to have been a thing pre-God if God began with the beginning. But if God did not begin with the beginning, then God is before the beginning. How does that do for your brain to start off? Before there was time, before there was space, before there was anything, God is. In Malachi 3, verse 6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. James calls God the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So not only does God exist before the very beginning of everything, not only is God eternal, both past and future, God also is unchanging. God is always exactly who and what God is. Are you guys willing to agree with that? Thus, God is always triune. 
God eternally exists as one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. While it is true that there was a time in eternity past when God the Son had not yet taken on human flesh, don't let yourself think for a moment that in eternity past there was only the Father. That's not true. In point of fact, never has there been a scene in which God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are not the persons of the Trinity, the one true God. And for all of eternity before creation, however you set your mind to grasp time outside of time, the persons of the Holy Trinity have been in perfect, unified, loving relationship. And what I want us to see today is this. Before there was time, before creation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the one God, entered into an agreement with one another. There is an eternal promise made among the persons of the Trinity based on the eternal relationship of the persons of the Trinity, which results in the eternal glorification of God. All of what you and I understand as history, as time, as the outworking of creation is part of this glorious plan and promise made among the three persons of the one triune God. Ask yourself, did God create the universe for a reason? What's your answer to that? Thank you. Ask yourself this. Is God able to bring about his eternal purpose in his creation? Y'all think about it. If God didn't create the universe for a reason, then nothing has any meaning. If God is unable to carry out his eternal purpose, then God is not God, not almighty, not sovereign, and perhaps not trustworthy. You get that, don't you? What if God couldn't bring about his will? How could you trust your salvation? Maybe he'll keep you, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll win, maybe he won't. We know better than that, don't we? God is God. God is almighty. God is holy, sovereign, trustworthy. Go deeper. What about the plan of redemption? What about the gospel? Is the gospel part of the eternal sovereign plan of God? Yeah. What are you going to say? Otherwise, the gospel is just a reaction of God to factors God chose not to control, or even worse, to factors God couldn't control? What would it say about our hope in eternity 
if we allowed ourselves to believe that the gospel is just God's best response to factors over which he was not sovereign? What would that say to your faith? I think it'd kill it. Without, therefore, taking us down a road that leads to nihilism, I want to give us this morning biblical evidence for a doctrine that undergirds everything we understand to be true of creation and of the gospel. If we want to get the Bible right, if we want to get our picture of eternity right, we need to get this doctrine right. And here I'm talking about something that theologians refer to as the covenant of redemption Now, in order to unpack this doctrine, I want to answer for us three questions. You can make these points if you want to, if you need points desperately, but then I don't know what you do with what you already wrote down. The questions are, what is the covenant of redemption? Where is the covenant of redemption found in Scripture? And why is the covenant of redemption important to Christians? That's where we're going to try to go for the remainder of the morning. Can you sit through it? Okay. First, what is the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is the agreement made between the persons of the Holy Trinity to accomplish God's plan of salvation his plan to redeem for himself a people. This plan is eternal, put in place by God before creation, thus before the fall of mankind. This plan is sovereign. It's not a response to man's failure. This plan is as sure as God is perfect and mighty. It is the eternal blueprint for everything God intends to accomplish in creation and salvation. The covenant of redemption involves each person of the Godhead. God the Father elects the people to salvation and sends forth his Son to accomplish those people's redemption. The Father also promises the Son a glorious reward for his participation in and and his completion of the mission. God the Son, for his part, is willing to be sent by the Father to accomplish the redemption of those elected by the Father. God the Holy Spirit causes the incarnation of the Son aids the Son in his earthly ministry, and applies redemption to and seals those elected by God the Father and redeemed by God the Son. Brown and Keel, who wrote a nice book on covenants from a Presbyterian point of view, say that the covenant of of redemption is the covenant established in eternity between the Father, who gives the Son to be the Redeemer of the elect and requires of Him the conditions for their redemption, and the Son, who voluntarily agrees to fulfill these conditions, and the Spirit, 
who voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. Your brain's keeping up? Before we dive further in, I do need to make a disclaimer. Some teachers don't like applying covenant language to the eternal plan of God. It has to do with components that these teachers say has to be present in every covenant. They think that every covenant must have a sign or every covenant must have a warning and sanctions if you break it. Obviously, you're not going to find sanctions threatened in the eternal pact between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I don't personally believe that you should define the word covenant that narrowly, so I'm perfectly willing to call this eternal agreement between the Father, Son, and Spirit, the covenant of redemption. But if your favorite Bible teacher calls this a promise or an agreement, but doesn't want to use the word covenant because of how they define the word covenant, that's fine with me. I do want to know why someone else is your favorite Bible teacher. It kind of hurts my heart. But still, if your favorite doesn't like that word, I'm okay with it. Let's not get bent out of shape over one word. Let's just do what we can to see the eternal agreement between the persons of the Trinity, and let's glorify our Lord for his eternal sovereign plan. So that's the what is the covenant of redemption. Next, where is the covenant of redemption found in Scripture? Go ahead and turn to Psalm 40. And you're going to be flipping in the pages of your Bible now for a little while, okay? So be ready to move along. While you're turning, I want to ask you guys a yes or no question. Do you believe that God is triune, a holy trinity, one God, three persons? Okay. If you do, that's good because it's true. The Bible clearly teaches us this doctrine. But the word trinity cannot be found in the pages of scripture. Did you know that? Like the word trinity, the phrase covenant of redemption is not found in the words of scripture. But a faithful study of the word of God shows us that this eternal plan of God is right there. In point of fact, the concept of the covenant of redemption between the persons of the Trinity is so very present in Scripture that we will not come close to touching all the hints and references to it in today's message. So for the rest of this morning, I want to limit our search for pointers to the covenant of redemption to the Old Testament alone. Psalm 40, look down at verse 6 to 8. You there? Thank you. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. Psalm 40 was written by David. So put it at about 1,000 B.C., give or take. And it is a response 
to the Lord's faithfulness to rescue David from a terrible situation. Verses 1 and 2, David describes the rescue. Verses 3 through 5 include David praising God for that rescue. Then, verses 6 through 8, David expresses his understanding that the Lord delights in the one who willingly obeys his command even more than God delights in sacrifices and burnt offering. Now, why do we look to this passage? Right? Because you're not having covenant of redemption bells ring in your head right now. Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 10. We won't read it today. You can mark this down, though. Hebrews 10, 5 to 10 claims this passage and applies it to Jesus. What we see here, if this applies to Jesus, which Hebrews 10 says it does, is that Jesus came to the earth to accomplish something he was sent by the Father to accomplish. This thing that the Son would accomplish is greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system, and the Son delights to obey his Father's command. Do you see where this starts to make sense or why this starts to matter? Remember, what doctrine are we looking for here? Is it there? The covenant of redemption says that there is a covenant among the persons of the Holy Trinity in which the Father sends the Son on a mission that the Son willingly chooses to go and obey the Father to accomplish. Here, with the authority of the Word of God in Hebrews 10, we see that Jesus is saying back to God the Father, even though David wrote these words, Jesus is saying, Father, I delight to obey your commission because we are united in a plan. The Son was willingly sent. But there must have been a moment when this agreement was struck. We refer to the agreement that is struck between the Father and the Son that the Father would send the Son to redeem and that the Son would go and redeem, that is part of the covenant of redemption. Now go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. All we have time to do this morning is these two psalms and the servant songs in Isaiah. This is where I'm a little jealous of Sunday school. I'd love to make Owen run the microphone around to you guys. We'll get there. Found Psalm 110? Verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So here David says the Lord. Now, when you look at the Lord there, do you see the all capital letters in Lord in the first the Lord said to my Lord? Yahweh, the covenant name of God, says something to the one who will be David's Lord, David's own master. Don't forget, Jesus personally applies this passage to himself in Matthew 22, 41 to 46, and the author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. What is being said, Jesus will be sent. Jesus will gain for himself a people. Jesus will rule, and the Father has sworn that Jesus will be an eternal priest. Now, again, there's a lot to unpack there. There's huge doctrinal implications to unpack here, but for the purpose of today's doctrinal study, ask yourself this question. When, when did this take place? This was, the psalm was written 1000 BC. When did this take place? When did the Father say to the Son, I will send you? When did the Father make a promise to the Son saying, I will give you an eternal priesthood? When did the Son say, Father, I will willingly go? There's no Old Testament passage of Scripture that indicates when this happens in our timeline. This plan, this promise of God was made before time began. Now, Isaiah 40. You can turn there. Isaiah 40. One can also find the pactum, the covenant of redemption, testified to, hinted at, in the servant songs of the book of Isaiah. So we're going to go to Isaiah 42, I'm sorry, not 40, 42, verse 1. Flippy, flippy, flippy. By the way, one good thing about this room, the sound of scripture flipping sounds pretty good in here too, doesn't it? I like the page rustling noises. We are doing our best. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Just, just walk with me fast here. God has promised a servant to come. And note that the Father says, I'm putting my spirit on the servant. Who's involved here? God the Father sends the servant. Jesus is the servant who comes. What, who does this Jesus have upon him? The Spirit. Look down at verses 5 through 7 now. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God the Father has called the servant. The Father gives the servant as a covenant to the nations. The Father will bring the nations, people from all nations, to himself, through the active work of the servant. And remember, the ministry of Jesus points us to the fact that this is him because Jesus is the one who gives sight to the blind and frees spiritual captives. Turn to Isaiah 49. 
Two more and we'll be done. Isaiah 49. Down at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the... the uh, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant God will send will fulfill the role of the true Israel. The servant God will send will fulfill the role of the true Israel, because you know Israel never did all the things God called them to be as a nation, right? But the servant that God will send will not be for physical Israel alone. He will bring salvation to the people for God from every nation. He's not limited. Isaiah 50. We've seen the Father sending the Son. We've seen the Father empowering the servant. We've seen the Father bringing the people to himself through the work of the servant. There seems to be this constant bell ringing of Father sending Son, Son agreeing to go and accomplish redemption for people from all over the world. Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 7. Look how Jesus, see this looks. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Y'all, this passage predicts the ministry of Jesus. He's following what? He's following the command of his Father, and he is supported by the Spirit of God. He accomplishes the redemption of God's people through his suffering, and he receives a reward that's going to be promised, that is being promised to him by the Father. One last passage, Isaiah 53, the last of the servant songs. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, what's the result of all this? I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is awfully familiar to you guys, isn't it? 
as we see the forever eternal plan of God unfold, the Son will make himself a sin offering to bring redemption to the people the Father sent him to redeem. Take particular note of the fact that this is all based on the will of the Lord. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The servant is obeying the will of the Lord. Afterward, at his resurrection, the will of God will prosper in his hand as he sees his spiritual offspring. The son will receive from the father a reward both of life and of the people that he redeems. Verse 12, Scripture makes clear that the exaltation of the son, his being lifted up, is the reward he receives from God for his completion of his agreed-upon mission. Ask yourself again, when did God make that plan? When did the Father choose that he would send the Son to redeem a people for himself from all nations? When did the persons of the Trinity agree on the reward that would be the Son's for accomplishing this mission? Because it's clearly spelled out here that it's there. When did the Son agree, Father, I will fulfill this plan for the reward that will be mine? This is and has always been the eternal plan of God. It's the covenant of redemption. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look to the New Testament. See, when we look at the Old Testament, we get hints. We get foreshadowings. We get, I think, because I know the Bible story, this is about Jesus. But next week we're going to be in the gospel according to John. And it will show us with greater and greater and greater clarity the covenant of redemption is a biblical truth. And we'll continue to see that before time, what is it? The persons of the Trinity, united in promise, in covenant, to redeem a people for God. The Father elected people to redemption, and he sent the Son, promising the Son of reward. The Son was sent and willingly accomplished the redemption of those God elected. The Holy Spirit applies redemption to and keeps those elected by the Father and redeemed by the Son. Why, now, last question, why is the covenant of redemption important to Christians. I've got such a temptation to say, I'll just leave you to think about it. But wouldn't that be nasty of me? I'm not a nice man, remember that. Now, let's get a couple thoughts. Before we close, I'll say a couple things about why this matters. Why do we care that there was an eternal agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit? The covenant of redemption clarifies for us how the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of salvation are perfectly connected and perfectly unified. 
Because God is always perfect, always unified among the persons of the Trinity, working in perfect concert with one another, we can be confident of the fact that God's plan of redemption will be perfectly accomplished without any failure whatsoever. Do you guys believe God the Father failed? Do you believe God the Son failed or could fail? Do you believe the Holy Spirit failed or could fail? Do you believe God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could be on different pages when it comes to redemption? Well, I'm going to try this, but you're going for that. That's not God. Redemption will be perfectly accomplished with no failure. We're not serving a God who's reacting to man's sin by doing his best to try to fix it. We're not serving a God who's trying his best, but he's subject to our whims. God is not trying to do what he can with the hand he was dealt. No, God made the plan. God decided the plan before there was time. Then God created the world and accomplished his plan exactly as God intended. Does that give you some hope? Christian, this doctrine should give you comfort and hope. If you have trusted Jesus, how many of you have actually trusted Jesus to be your Savior? That means God planned for your salvation, God accomplished your salvation, God applied your salvation, and God will perfectly and absolutely complete your salvation. You need not fear that he could ever lose you. You need not fear failing your way out of the kingdom. God has you, and God will keep you. Also, Christian, this doctrine should move you to worship and thanksgiving. You can see if this picture is so eternally grand. You didn't influence God toward your salvation. How would you like it, by the way, if you had to somehow influence God to want to save you? How well would you do? Instead, though, you know what you are? You're an object of the grace of God. Give God praise. Be humble. Rejoice in God's holy mercy. Finally, Christians, this truth should lead you to share the gospel with greater joy and greater boldness than ever before. If God has a people that he has already said, I intend to save them, but you say, I don't know who that is. You, under the authority of God, should eagerly carry the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to every last person on earth. Listen to me. God is going to save people you think are unsavable. 
God will not fail. And God may use you in your weakness to see people enter his family as he destined before there was time. And what if you're hearing me and you don't yet know Jesus? I want you to ask yourself this question. Why would God allow you to hear this message? Is it not possible that the reason God is letting this fall on your ears is that God intends for you to be among the elect? That he intends you to be redeemed by Jesus? That he intends you to be forgiven made a child of God and granted heaven forever. Don't stress about the choices God made before he created. That's not really any of your business or mine. Instead, understand this glorious truth. All who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus who died for their sin and rose from the grave... All who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus will be saved. All who stop trying to be the masters of their own lives and who cry out to Jesus for mercy will be granted eternal life by God. Do not try to figure everything out. Know that you're guilty of sin just like I am. Know that you need the grace that only Jesus can give you. Let go of trying to be the boss master controller of your life. Cry out to Jesus. Entrust your soul to Jesus. And dear friend, be saved today. Let's bow together and pray. God, your word is deep and your word is rich and your doctrines can be heavy and hard. And I don't pretend, Lord, that I understand every bit of how you work. But I know this, God, you are great. Your gospel is great. Your eternal plan is great. And I surrender to it. God, let us rejoice in your greatness. Let us be a gospel-loving, gospel-sharing, gospel-rejoicing, gospel-trusting, Jesus-trusting people. We ask it in our Savior's holy name. Amen.